Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend. I'm Allison Kaplan Summer. It's been a roller coaster ride of a week in Israeli politics as the Knesset opened its summer session with Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's coalition lacking a majority and hanging in the balance. Following the unrest on the Temple Mount, a wave of terror attacks, and the death of a high-profile journalist during an IDF raid on Janine, everyone has been asking the question, will the pressure on Mansour Abbas, leader of the Ram Party, whose participation in this coalition has made history, finally be too much? Are we headed to new elections? Here with us to discuss and explain recent events is Haaretz columnist Dr. Dalia Scheinlin, an expert in Israeli politics and public opinion. After that conversation, I'll be speaking to Evan Fallenberg, owner of the Arabesque Hotel in the mixed city of Akko, as he marks the year anniversary since a mob stormed and destroyed his hotel. He'll talk about the process of recovery, rebuilding, and the future of coexistence in Akko and in Israel. All that coming up. To let me know Should I stay or should I go If you say that you are mine I'll be here till the end of time So I'm happy to welcome Dr. Dahlia Scheinlin to the show. Hi, Dahlia. Hi, Allison. So Dahlia is a political scientist, public opinion expert, and a policy fellow at the Century Foundation, and we're proud to say a regular opinion columnist for Haaretz. Aficionados of high-quality podcasting will recall that she co-hosted a podcast here on Haaretz called Election Overdose, which was the indispensable companion for Israel's fourth elections in March of last year, the election that brought us our current change coalition about to mark a year since its birth, June 13th, 2021. So the question everyone is asking as the Knesset opened its summer session this week is whether that government will make it till its first birthday. You're not going to ask me to predict that, are you? (laughs) Well, the prospects are starting to look dimmer than they were. It seemed, you know, in back in March, a year since the election, everyone was saying, look how this coalition is holding together, considering the ideological spectrum. We've got parties, you know, from the far left to the right, Yamina and Meretz. We've got the uh, Ram Party, the uh, Islamic movement. It was holding together surprisingly well. And then, surprise, Edith Seelman, the coalition whip from Bennett's own Yamina party, made a surprise exit, and everything seemed to be rolling downhill from there. We had a wave of terror. We had a very tense Ramadan Passover period with a lot of tension on the Temple Mount. Ram, the Islamic movement, said that it was freezing its participation in the coalition. Even today, as we record, we weren't sure if there might be a vote to dissolve the coalition. For now, it seems to be holding together by its fingernails, perhaps. Mansour Abbas, head of the Ram party, seems to hold this coalition in his hand. He's the Hamlet. You know, should I or shouldn't I be responsible for dissolving the coalition? How did we get to that place? You know, some people were saying that it's a historic event that the Al-Shura Council, you know, the Islamic Movement Council, which supposedly directs the policies of the uh, Ram Party, is responsible for the fate of the government of the Jewish state. The most historic part of this was the fact that Ram joined the coalition, the fact that for the first time in Israeli history, there is a party representing Arab or Palestinian citizens of Israel in the executive power in Israel. And that 
shouldn't have taken so long for a minority group to have representation in the executive. That in itself was revolutionary. And I think that there was an assumption that this would be an enormous and great breakthrough and seen as a triumph for the Arab citizens of Israel. But he is under enormous pressure. Nothing is ever as simple as it looks. There are detractors of that move. There are people who feel like it was a betrayal for that party to join this government headed by Naftali Bennett, who used to represent the Judean Samaria Settlers Council and is very strongly affiliated with the settler community and in general, the far right-wing religious community in Israel, even though his party has tried to take stake out a more centrist right-wing position in the strange way Israeli political trajectory turns here. So I think Mansour Abbas is coming under a lot of criticism, both from Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel, but also from within his own party. Having said that, there are large numbers, and we see this in survey research, who support the party being in government, having gone into the government. So you have you know, the vocal opposition I'm talking about just within his general constituency and what looks like a very consistent high level of support from the Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel for having a party in the executive. So that's already his dilemma. And that was exacerbated severely by the clashes at Al-Aqsa because, of course, he does represent the Islamic movement in Israel. Those clashes largely centered around the fears that Israel was trying to take over or split somehow the possession and access to the Al-Aqsa compound. But I want to make a different point about this coalition, which is that he certainly isn't the only party who has the coalition's fate in its hands. It's just that the spotlight is on him right now. But remember, with eight different parties in the coalition, that means many of them are small parties. They only have or had 61 seats. Now they have 60 broken up into eight different parties. So you can do the math. There are many small parties. And theoretically, all of them have the fate of the coalition in their hands. What's interesting, though, is that the coalition itself doesn't seem so fragmented when it came together and was like, oh, how are all these parties going to stay together into a coalition? The insecurity seems to be coming from within the parties at one end and at the other end of the ideological spectrum. It's keeping all of the members in Yamina. It's keeping all of the support within Ram for Mansour Abbas's desire to stay in the coalition. So we're not looking sort of at a typical coalition crisis between the parties. We're looking at this intra-party situation. That's true. And it's an interesting observation, but I wouldn't downplay the possible differences between the parties, too. I think that each party now sees that they have so much bargaining power because there are only 60 seats that we have a sort of horse trading over lists of demands from individual members of Knesset who are participants in the factions that are part of the coalition. And they all know it's almost like every man or woman for herself in terms of their bargaining power because they could split their parties and they could split the coalition. So I want to take advantage of the fact that, A, you're an expert in public opinion and have worked a great deal in terms of public opinion within the Arab population of Israel and that you've done political work in the past for the joint list. Can you explain for those of us who are not as expert what exactly the split is between the joint list of which Mansour Abbas and Ram was once a part? And the Ram Party as it stands, is it strictly an issue of do we, you know, join with the Israeli government? Do we work from the inside from the coalition? Is that sort of the ideological divide between the two? Is it just religious issues? Or are we talking about a personality leadership contest between Abbas and Ayman Oda, the head of the joint list? I think that the split between them goes back further and it has, well, a little further and then a lot further. I think that the medium term split between them was when under Netanyahu's final government, when he was still scrambling to try to form a coalition himself before and after the last election, he also was talking to Mansour Abbas about the possibility of bringing Ra'am in. And the split at the time really focused around the idea of what is the price that Ram, as a party representing Arab citizens of Israel, had to pay for joining right-wing-led Israeli government coalitions. And that was basically the deal 
under which he does not discuss or demand issues related to Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories in West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. And that is a sort of bargain that he made. And he said it very openly. We have disagreements within this government. We're not going to make those issues first priority. We're going to talk about daily life problems. And there is no lack of daily life problems, very severe problems in the Arab community in Israel. And of course, he tries to also portray that he's in, you know, he wants to deal with problems of all of Israeli society, but specifically to represent the material, economic, development, infrastructure problems of the Arab community in Israel. And the joint list would really not, or at least it would claim that it wouldn't want to make that compromise, that you can't separate these two, that they would be committed to insisting that the Israeli government move ahead towards an end to the occupation, towards reaching a comprehensive political resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I think that they represent the kind of people who would not accept postponing that issue or giving up on it as a trade-off for dealing with issues that are relevant primarily to the citizens of Israel, whether they're Arab-Palestinian or Jewish citizens. But the joint list, I think they would not be able to make that compromise. They wouldn't want to make that compromise. And that's definitely one of the things they've been criticizing Abbas for. In other ways, of course, the other main difference, I would say, has to do with the roots of the current parties in the joint list, Hadash being one of them, Hadash, of course, incorporating within the historic Israeli Communist Party. And the image there is that it's a secular party and they are supposed to embrace universal values on some level. Now, whether it's liberal universal values gets a little bit touchy, but this is where the joint list comes under very significant pressure to define their attitudes towards the LGBT community, which has become a flagship kind of test case, a litmus test of where you stand on conservative values versus liberal values. And the joint list has been caught in the middle and they haven't always known what to do. They have portrayed sometimes that they're catering to the conservative voices and not wanting to be open about supporting LGBT rights, while certain other figures like Aida Tumasliman has expressed more support, but they've kind of taken criticism from both sides on that. Whereas Ra'am, as a representative of the Islamic movement, does not have that dilemma. It's a conservative party. They're not expected to really take any position on that. And therefore, they kind of have a free pass on it. But it does represent distinct difference, I think, in terms of this is a real debate going on inside Palestinian society in Israel, as it is in the Jewish community as well. So Mansour Abbas, as of today, appears to be sticking by his guns, even on a very turbulent news cycle where we've had the killing of an Al Jazeera journalist in Janine. He is sticking by his vow to do what is best for the Arab citizens of Israel, you know, on his shopping list, on his laundry list, and he's not going to let ideological concerns. He's not going to let what's going on in the West Bank trump that. And he seems to have either convinced the Shura Council, the Islamic Council to do his bidding, or they're giving him a long leash, etc. I mean, doesn't it seem like he's with this coalition no matter what happens? And he's just kind of toying with expectations and playing a political game and making us think that maybe he will leave. Do you think that he would ever actually walk away and be the cause of the collapse of this government? Well, of course he could always do it. And, you know, we have a long and you know robust tradition of Israel of smaller parties bolting the coalition and bringing the coalition down. And I don't think he was playing a game. I don't think he's quite that much of a mastermind, but I do think he's under a lot of pressure. And I think he had to show his constituency that he was taking some sort of a significant step in light of the very severe crackdown, I think, of police on Palestinian worshippers at Al-Aqsa Mosque, leaving aside the entire background of how it got that way. That was a reality. And the, you know, the pictures and the visuals really upset people. And I think he had to show that he was trying to punish the government on some level. I don't think it was a game. I'm sure he 
probably really considered leaving the coalition. But I do think that it's interesting. He seems to have a very focused strategy. And his strategy is that I am going to be part of the coalition. I'm going to try to get things done in the way, you know, in his consideration of what matters. For example, the electricity law that he actually was successful in passing through, extending electricity infrastructure to mostly Arab villages where they had problems connecting. And these kinds of things, I think he is hoping will prove that it's worth participating in the government in Israel, including if the results take a while and they're long term. And I think that he probably concluded, if I can conjure up the way a politician thinks, and he is a very savvy politician, I think he probably concluded, you know, the kinds of things I'm hoping to achieve will take a while. It's a huge risk. There's a lot of criticism. He's probably getting lots of pressure. But the strategy is that I will achieve the long term goals and that will be its reward. And of course, at this point, it's also his main distinguishing identity from the joint list. And the joint list is attacking him every day for being, you know, essentially some kind of a collaborator in this government. And so I think that this is a very real dilemma for him. But I think it's a smart strategy because he's showing a real consistent commitment. Whether it works or not, I don't know. But I think that voters do often respect a sort of single minded focus. You wrote a very timely column because religion, the Shura Council, and Edith Silman's ostensibly religious reason for leaving the government was playing out in our current politics. Your column that's up on Haaretz.com right now is titled, What's God Got to Do With It? How Religion Fuels the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. And you're a political analyst and strategist, so it's interesting to watch you put a spotlight on religion. So talk to us about how, on one hand, the numbers don't lie, that religion definitely exacerbates conflict and war in the Middle East. But your column sort of posits that it's not quite so simple. And maybe Mansour Abbas himself is an example of a way in which religion is not necessarily catalyst towards extremism. Religion is an exacerbating factor. I think it would be very wrong to reduce this to a religious conflict. But there's no, as a pollster, it's impossible to ignore. Because certainly in Israel, there is what I call the iron law of Israeli polling, which is that the more religious the respondents in a survey, in any survey, the more right wing. And that holds for between the secular Jews and the traditionalists. Secular Jews are nearly 60% either centrist or left wing. And among traditionalists, nearly 70% are right wing. And it goes up from there. When you're talking about the national religious community, a little bit down, but still an overwhelming majority of ultra-Orthodox are right-wing. On the Palestinian side, we also have somewhat of a religious divide. It's not quite as stark, but it's the same direction. And so if the entire country was secular, just looking at surveys, we would have a majority in favor of a two-state solution. We would have made the compromises, you know. And so on that level, it does make it seem like this is such a religiously driven conflict. But of course, the conflict started way before some of the religious forces that we now think of as so central even existed. So, for example, I think on the Israeli Jewish side, we have the settler movement, which is largely driven by a messianic religious theology. But that's only one stream. Of course, there are other streams of religious Orthodox Judaism that have promoted different interpretations and different conclusions about what to do in relation to land compromise, for example, or accepting the idea of a Palestinian state. And on the Palestinian side, one of the most interesting developments is that both the Islamic movement in Israel and Hamas are offshoots of the Muslim Brotherhood. And so this is one movement in the Middle East that has led to such vastly different political programs. So Hamas has a political program of redeeming the entire land of Palestine by force, although in recent years they've kind of indicated they might settle for the 67 areas, but it's a militant strategy and it is very theologically driven and they basically run a theocracy in Gaza. Whereas the Islamic movement in Israel has two branches and we're looking at the leader of the more moderate branch, but his entire political conclusion is that we have to join with the Israeli government, 
work within the system, not to give up on the national identity, but also not make the hardline militant approach central to our program because there are other aspects of life that are more important. That's at the leadership level. And of course, at the level of the public, there are many people who are religious Mm -hmm. who are not militant or hardline or right wing or uncompromising. They may be a minority in this region, but there's no reason to assume that they can't be important. And I think that ultimately, because much of the modern manifestation, certainly post 67, of the conflict is either sparked or stoked by religious forces. So it's not the underlying exclusive reason for the conflict, but we do see clashes at Al-Aqsa, for example, partly because there are so many worshipers there, Jews and Muslims at the same time. That's one of the reasons we see escalation. You can't ignore that it is a spark. And of course, something like the settler movement, which is not only religious, but is largely driven by a religious theology, is such a deepening factor for the conflict that we have to be able to bring them in in order to resolve it. There's no way to do this without the acquiescence, at least partial acquiescence. Now, that raises a dilemma. You can't tailor a peace agreement around the extremists because the extremists are maximalists. Exactly. But you have to try to figure out where are the people who are interested in this, open to it? How do we make common cause? Where can we make common cause? And where do we have to say we probably won't be able to make common cause? And one of the dilemmas that I found while researching this article is that that in the religious communities who are open-minded, towards compromise with the other side and eventually reaching a compromise-based political resolution, there is a great fear that that also means accepting liberal universalist values of the left-wingers who are advancing them. Now, I'm not going to apologize for those values. I do think they're better for most people in the world. I think they are a ground rule. The ideas of equality, individual rights, and a recognition, of course, of identity, I think those are the ground rules that all different communities should agree on. But I also recognize that I can't impose the entire progressive liberal worldview on communities that are very conservative, take much longer to change, maybe will never change on certain specific aspects. I don't want to be purist about it. I think the most urgent thing is to reach a political resolution, end the military occupation of the Palestinians, and allow them to have self-determination. And so I think that whatever has to happen to get there, it will mean bringing in the people who, in large parts, are among the biggest obstacles. Right. But it's interesting on the Arab Palestinian Muslim side, we see a phenomenon like the direction that Ram and Mansour Abbas is going. And then on the flip side, on the Jewish side, there's more of talk of more religious Jews turning more towards political extremism, you know, kind of away from their religious extremism, voting for parties like United Torah, Judaism and Shas and being more attracted to political extremism, you know, with a religious face like Ben Gvir's. The Religious Zionism Party at this point in the most recent survey I saw over the last two days from Channel 13, that's the third biggest party in the polling right now. Nine seats. That's 50 percent more than they currently have in Knesset. That's an amazing rising force for a neo-Kahanist Jewish supremacist party. So, yes, that's true. Having said that, I should make one qualification. Maybe you didn't notice, but I did lump Ra'am in with the Palestinians. Now, there is a distinction between Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem living under occupation, or in the case of East Jerusalem under Israeli control. And the Palestinian citizens of Israel, they have somewhat of a different trajectory on this issue. In other words, citizens of Israel are not as divided, even as Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, based on religion. The level of religious observance is not correlated or barely correlated with different political attitudes. Now, it's true that people who really say I am secular among Arab citizens of Israel are more likely to identify with the Communist Party and with Joint List. But in terms of where they stand on the conflict, 
it's not a big difference between the more and less religious inside Israel. That is one distinction between the two communities. And in the Jewish community, I think that, yes, the trend you point out is certainly correct. There are, you know, religious people are either voting for one of the ultra-Orthodox parties or for the religious Zionist party. And in the past, they voted, of course, for Jewish home, Bennett's party. There are exceptions. And I don't want to brand every religious person as so right-wing that they would reject any kind of political compromise. But those people are a minority. And yet, maybe precisely because they're a minority, I think we need to find a way to make that common cause. And hopefully the justifications that they have within Orthodox Judaism for justifying reaching political compromise and an end to occupation, you know, hopefully those interpretations will take root and draw in more supporters. Did taking this close look at the correlation between religion and extremism leave you more optimistic because you saw, you know, more directions and possible strategies? Or were you in the mood to throw up your hands and say, there's nothing to do. Religion equals extremism. I think I wrote the piece in a way because for so many years I've been looking at the data. And I will maybe say something that people don't know about me, which is that I do have two degrees in religious studies before I became a political scientist. I didn't know that well, about you, go. Dalia. I did yeah. my bachelor's and a master's degree in comparative religion. So I've thought a lot about these issues. And I think that when I am so relentlessly steeped in the data showing those very, very polarized divides, specifically among the Israeli Jewish community, that's what makes me throw up my hands. So I wrote the article not because I think there wasn't that much in it that I didn't know in general. Again, I've been familiar with the efforts, sometimes coming from within the religious Jewish community, for example, like Rabbi Froman, you know, Menachem Froman, who was from the settlement of Tekoa. He is a settler in a, right. in a you know, far out settlement in the West Bank, but really believed in trying to build bridges with other leaders of different faith groups and also believed in political compromise. You can criticize that from many angles, considering, you know, he lived in Tekoa. But still, these are interesting people who've managed to win the trust of some Palestinian partners, and that has to be recognized. So I did know about those efforts. And I think that over the years, that kind of thing has tempered my own kind of sadness over the fact that here in Israel, being religious seems so inextricably linked to having hardline attitudes. I think what really drove me was too often I hear the community that I'm a part of, let's face it, I'm part of the left-wing liberal universalist camp in Israel and everywhere. I hear people say really, I think, wrongful and reductionist and disrespectful attitudes towards religious people as if they are incapable of understanding another community's suffering, disinterested in allowing Palestinian self-determination and committed to Jewish supremacy. And I don't think that is sufficiently characteristic of all religious people. I think it's a form of chauvinism, and I, I don't think it helps to have an arrogant liberal attitude that our way is the only way and we need to be uncompromising about it. Otherwise, there's no peace. That's like saying... We're never going to get to peace because you're not going to change everybody in the world. So I think it's dismissive and wrong. In a way, it's a bit of self-critique as well of my own community. It's a fascinating column. You want to learn more about it, check it out on haaretz.com. To close up the interview, I'm going to go back to current events and current politics. Some people say it's too early to eulogize this government, even though it seems to be kind of living in borrowed time. You wrote a really interesting column back in the winter whether you thought it had been worth it for the Israeli left to join this coalition, this anti-Netanyahu, wide political spectrum coalition and make the compromises that it did in order to sit in power and sit in the government. With the pessimistic assumption that, again, the days are numbered in this coalition, though you never know what's going to happen in Israeli politics, looking forward, what lessons do you think that the country in general, and specifically, I guess, the progressive left, the people who want to move towards peace, what lessons will they have learned from this experiment of participating in this wide spectrum political coalition that went from far left to essentially far right? 
There are some people who would say that my conclusions can be a little bit too equivocal on these things because there's no one hard and fast answer. But I do think that they will have learned that they can be part of the governing powers. And I think that they're hoping that the public has learned that as well. Because and they needed to after having so been in opposition exactly. for many years. They're hoping that the public will have seen that. And I think they're also hoping to have put the other issues on the agenda. The fact that Meretz holds both the environment ministry and the health ministry, I think, could go a long way to resolving a kind of contradiction that Meretz has had to deal with for a long time, which is that the majority of Israelis, and I have pulled on this because I've also advised Meretz in previous campaigns, both in 2009 and in 2019, that a large portion of the Israeli public agrees with their agenda on social and economic issues. And there's not a great deal of opposition to slowing down climate change in Israel. There's not much awareness, but there's also not much opposition. And there's all sorts of support, and I have pulled on that too, for strengthening the social safety net and the, our health services, which are considered you know, stellar by any stretch. But for Israelis, of course, they could always be better. And Israelis do expect the state to do that. So I think these are two positions where Meretz has always been a strong position from the pr- public perspective, but because the public perceives them as so far left-wing on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which simply means that they support a two-state solution, but that's become a very left-wing attitude in Israel. Many people have not wanted to vote for Meretz because of the latter problem. And so I think this puts them back on the map as, you know, we are focused on social issues, not to mention Labor Party, which holds the Transportation Ministry and the Diaspora Ministry. And so these are other areas. Listen, not that I think the left-wing should ever hide its commitment to ending occupation, nor do I think it should let that commitment be superseded by anything else. But this is the political reality of this government. Everybody knew this government was not going to make progress on that issue in many ways. Even right-wing columnists and opinion formers in Israel admit that this government is in some ways even more right-wing than the previous government when it comes to the conflict. They've just announced 4,000 new housing projects in the settlements. There were no illusions about it. I think that that's probably what the left is hoping, that the public sees that they have governing power, that they can pragmatically commit themselves to other very important social concerns that people care about, and it will maybe help boost their fortunes. But so far, I have to say, in the public polling, I'm not seeing that because their combined power actually seems to have gone down two seats. They had 13 in the current Knesset. They look at there at about 11 between the two of them in the most recent poll. Of course, all of that is preliminary because typically in Israeli politics, we don't even know who's running in the election. <laughs> So another reason not to relish the idea of uh, yet another election, but uh, we'll wait and see what happens. It's, you know, seems to be our mantra these days. I have to just put on my political scientist hat for a second and say that from a democratic perspective, this is devastating because you shouldn't have to have, you know, five elections in two and a half years guzzling up funds from the public budget. I remind American listeners that we do not have serious levels of private funding. These are publicly funded campaigns. It's my money as a taxpayer, and I don't want it. I think that is contributes to a devastating blow to the level of trust between citizens and their government. Not healthy for any democracy. Well, the people you've studied, you know, who are religious can look to a higher power maybe to prevent that from happening. So we'll see. <laughs> Inshallah. <laughs> Inshallah. <laughs> Dr. Dahlia Scheinlin, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, a conversation with Evan Fallenberg. I'd like to welcome Evan Fallenberg to Haaretz Weekend. Thanks for joining us, Evan. Lovely to be here. Thank you. So Evan is here to mark a year since the events of May 2021, when Israel experienced surreal and disturbing 11 days. What made the international headlines were the missile strikes and the retaliatory attacks going on between Israel and Gaza. 
But what really shook Israelis at the time were the accompanying riots and violence inside so-called mixed cities where Jews, Muslims, and Christians live and work side by side, in many cases, literally one home and one business right next to the other. Evan was personally affected when his boutique hotel and art center, Arabesque, in the old city of Akko was attacked and ransacked by gangs of uh, Palestinian Israeli youth. Evan, in the midst of all this, you wrote, it is no small feat to upturn a grand piano or split a sink in two or rip a television or air conditioner into its tiniest parts. You wrote that the anger and hatred necessary are beyond my own imagination, the pull of muscles involved beyond my capacity. But I do not wish to envision the frenzy as it crescendoed. I prefer instead to remember what had been lost. And then you continued into a reflection of sort of the beauties of life in a mixed city in Akko. Before we get into those painful events and what you've been through in the past year, let's understand where you come from. Being a hotel owner in northern Israel wasn't exactly how you fashioned your life, correct? That's right. I'm a writer, novelist, and a translator of uh, Hebrew literature into English, and uh, I teach at Barilan University. And uh, I bought a very run-down 300-year-old Ottoman building in the old city of Akko as a home for myself and a studio, a writing studio. And somehow that just kind of turned into a tiny three-room boutique hotel that in the meantime my son has taken way beyond and turned into really something special. As an American, originally American-Israeli, I mean, you're probably pretty familiar with some of the urban tensions of gentrification. And so part of this issue of our mixed cities is you've got this combination of the usual gentrification, economic consequences when uh, more affluent people, you know, try to uh, improve a, a poor neighborhood racial tensions, and then, you know, add in religion and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Were you worried about all this when you bought your building, which you turned into the hotel? I walked completely blind into this whole project. I saw a beautiful old city that attracted me for many reasons. And I think luckily, ultimately, I didn't think too much about it. I didn't know what I was doing. And it was a lucky sort of happenstance. I read something once that Jerry Seinfeld said about daring and projects. And when he was asked about uh, some of the things that he started up in his life, and he said, you know, dumb, blind luck has really gotten me far. And I think this, the same thing for myself. So this wasn't in my consciousness at the time. And as a matter of fact, I only started to figure out the whole business of gentrification when I was already a part of it and started to worry that, wait a minute, what, what exactly am I contributing here? And what am I bringing about? What am I causing? Because what I didn't want to happen was what happens almost everywhere in gentrification, that a neighborhood changes so dramatically. I came into a place and I liked it the way it was in many ways. <laughs> like so many places, improvements are necessary, changes are necessary, but I didn't want the neighborhood to change. I didn't want to lose my lovely neighbors and you know have them priced out as often happens in gentrification. So at one point I actually consulted with a gentrification expert at Tufts University and I asked him what kind of models can we emulate around the world to make sure that the gentrification goes well for the locals. And he said, well, there actually are none. And that's when I was really worried. But I think that the most important thing that's happening now in the old city of Akko is that 
many of the locals are understanding that the best thing for them in the future is to stay put and to do what others, Jews and Palestinians, have done, and that is to take on the piece of property that is theirs and to make it into something that can be used as a business. Most of that business has to do with tourism, but not all of it. And uh, more and more people are doing that. And mm -hmm. so I think we're actually moving in the right direction in Akko in many ways, as far as that's concerned. That direction that you felt you were already moving in, you know, plus that you have some employees who are also your neighbors who you feel very close and attached to. So that must have been part of the reason, I would imagine, why what happened last year must have come as a shock. A shock and not a shock. I mean, it's a shock for a few seconds. And then when you think about where we are, I don't mean just in Akko, but this country that we're sort of sitting on a fault line, issues that haven't been solved in the last 74 years. So it's not a surprise, ultimately. And as blind as I claim to have been walking into this, I've learned a lot over the last few years. And it was always clear to me that my lovely neighbors would remain my lovely neighbors no matter what happens. And that was true through all of this. But it's the circle beyond that and the circle beyond that and the resentments that people harbor that I know nothing about until something like this crops up. Well, then everything changes. As painful as it is, describe a little bit what happened to the hotel and what could have happened to the hotel. It could have been worse, right? And about the process of rebuilding. So the first evening of the riots, when, for example, the Uribori restaurant and the Effendi Hotel were trashed and burnt, the marauders tried to get into Arabesque as well. And my next door neighbor, Palestinian Muslim, kept them out. He stood guard all night, not because anybody asked him to. He just did it. And he was out until four in the morning. And the next morning we felt we'd been spared. It was amazing. And then when we found out that the police and the fire department were not planning to come into the old city if there were any more riots, we knew that trouble was still ahead. And indeed, that same evening, the marauders were back. They were all over the old city. They tried again and again and again. Again and again, my neighbor kept them away. And eventually, they had him stand aside. He asked them one thing, though. He asked them not to burn the place down because it would have taken down the entire neighborhood. And they honored that. So what they did was they, in, in about 45 minutes, something like 25 men, young men, came in and completely, completely destroyed everything that they could get their hands on. And the level of destruction was was shocking, yes. The next morning at 7.30 when I came in and walked around all these possessions of mine and walls and furniture that was lovingly renovated over the years, it was very hard to see. It was very hard to see. But I was more preoccupied with not the things. Things are replaceable. Things are never been all that important to me. I was preoccupied with what was going on in the minds of the people who were doing this. I asked my neighbors a lot of questions about the noise level. I was very curious about how much noise it must have been. And uh, one neighbor described to me how her grown daughter was standing out in the alley with her hands over her ears, sobbing. I was trying to imagine all that breaking glass and a piano flipping over, all the strange music that must have been coming out of it. I was obsessed with this for a few days, really, thinking about all that noise. And the contrast to that for me was the quiet of good neighborly relations. We have great relations. And the quiet of sitting down and putting 
pen to paper to write about this. So in a very kind of a quiet way, that was my rebellion against all of this terrible, terrible noise. I interviewed you, I think, a day after it happened, and you told me at the time that you used to tell every guest that came in to your uh, hotel that uh, Akko was the model of successful coexistence, and uh, you believed it was hopefully some kind of microcosm of what could happen in the country and that it was in danger of being lost. At that point, you weren't even sure that you were going to rebuild as you have. You were considering maybe, especially if your son didn't want to, you know, try to rebuild what had been lost that you might have given up. Can you tell me about sort of the evolution of your feelings over the past year as you've uh, moved to rebuild and reopen? So those first few days were, were shock, just like losing a loved one. In Muslim culture, you uh, mourn someone for three days, unlike in Jewish culture where it's seven. And I feel like, in a sense, I had three days of intense mourning. Then after those three days, during which time I was asking myself the big questions like, was I wrong about all this? Had I completely misinterpreted the friendly relations I thought I had? Am I not wanted in this place just because I'm Jewish? After those three days, it became pretty clear to me that that was not an issue. My neighbors were coming out to tell me, don't take this personally. This isn't against you. This is bigger than all of us. So that was a start. And we made the decision really quickly after that, that we were going to come back and reopen. In terms of my evolution in thinking about where we are in all of this, I really feel that it's a long, long process, and it was a reminder that the process is far from being completed. But the other thing that I think was very relevant that I learned through all of this was that everybody was blaming someone, that everybody was pointing fingers at everyone else. And I, and my message to everybody I met then, my Jewish friends, my Muslim friends, everyone was, we're all responsible here in some way. What if we all look at ourselves and say, what is it that we haven't been doing what is it that we could have been doing so that none of this would have happened? And if we all look inward and we try and ask ourselves those questions, then maybe we'll come up with some good answers. I'm not sure it's really happening. It's much easier for people to point fingers and blame and not feel that they're responsible. But I think it's the only way that we're going to find our, our way out of all this uh, situation. Well, I visited you there recently at the beautiful hotel, highly recommended. It seems like your reaction to having been through all this was not to run back to Tel Aviv or run back to Ohio even, but you seem more connected to Akko than you did before going yeah. through this ordeal. So in the end, I really do feel that my connection to the city and to the people is stronger than it ever was. And that in a sense, I couldn't leave even if I wanted to, because I have to be part of what's going to be positive change in the city instead of negative change. And um, I need to stay. You've written three novels. You can now officially say that uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Oh, absolutely. You could not make up a character like yourself going through something like this. <laughs> no, and I don't want to imagine it again. <laughs> Tourism is coming back, right? It's coming back slowly, yeah. but it's coming back. Yes. That's great. Good luck. Evan Fallenberg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Allison. And that wraps things up for this episode of Haaretz Weekend. Thanks to my guests, Dahlia Scheinlin and Evan Fallenberg, and to my producer and editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. I'm Allison Kaplan-Sommer. Until next time, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>